God has a sense of humor. Um, we see that through some stories in the Bible. There are some stories in the Bible that are just flat out funny. I mean, as you read them, they are, you can see God has a sense of humor through the, some of the things that happen in scripture. We see it <clears throat> even in circumstances that we go through. God has a sense of humor. Let me explain why I'm bringing that up today. At the beginning of every year, Okay, I work through my preaching calendar for the year. I kind of at the end of the year, I do it for the next year. And I work through my whole preaching calendar, what sermon series I believe God has laid on my heart to preach, when, for how long, uh, what topics I will be covering. For some series, I even break down early on what each week will be about and what I'm going to cover. Typically, those are for more topically driven sermon series. Uh, for others, like this one on the Lord's Prayer, which is more moving through a passage of Scripture, I have a general idea, and then I work my way through a passage, or I work my way through a book of the Bible as we go. So last week, we began this series on the Lord's Prayer, and we began it with an overview on the Lord's Prayer and why it's significant to us and why prayer itself is important. And today, we're beginning to look at the first line of the Lord's Prayer, which is our Father in heaven. So here's the irony. Today, we're talking about God, our Father, and what that means on Mother's Day. And I just think God has a sense of humor. You can't make this stuff up. God has a sense of humor. So let's get into it and let's see what the Bible has to teach us today on God as our Heavenly Father. And as we jump into this first look as part of the Lord's Prayer itself, I want to remind you about, and I, I just talked about a little bit ago, but about the prayer request section in our Trilogy app. And it's in the communication part. You can submit uh, prayer requests uh, form there. And lately, we've had several people who are taking advantage of that, and they are submitting prayer requests through the app and those have been forwarded on immediately to our prayer team to begin praying along with them for God to do what only he can do. And I want to encourage you to take advantage of that opportunity to have the Trilogy prayer team join you in believing God for a miracle in your life and in your circumstances or for someone else that you care about. You can submit a prayer request, obviously, for someone else as well. Because God designed prayer to be more than just you and God. And the Lord's Prayer makes that abundantly clear to us right off the bat. Matthew 6, verse 9, pray like this, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven is how Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer. And it begins with a simple statement about who God is as Jesus invites us to say, our Father, when we pray. Now, one of the keys to understanding the Lord's Prayer is correctly understanding what this phrase means. First of all, when you say, our Father in heaven, you are admitting that you don't pray alone. You know, the, the Lord's Prayer is not a private prayer. The words I and me are nowhere to be found in the Lord's Prayer. It's us and we and our. It is a community prayer. It is a church-wide prayer. Prayer, you are admitting that you are not the only one in the world who has a concern to bring to God. It's way bigger than you. And when we begin with the word our, 
it means that you are in a community with a family of God's children around the world and then specifically locally in our church family. You are a part of something that is bigger than you. And before we go any further, some of you really need to hear that today. This faith story that you are in is not a solo race. We run together. We run as a pack. We encourage one another. We support one another. We correct one another. And if you're feeling alone or you're feeling isolated, please know that God never intended for you to live that way. Don't play a team sport solo. It doesn't work. Join one of our neighborhood groups and learn what it truly means to call God our Father. We even have an online neighborhood group led by Pastor Ken and Terry for those who can't get out to make it to one of our host homes. Let me know how I can get you connected and we will make it happen. We'll get you signed up for one of our neighborhood groups and get you plugged in. It is so critical to doing life together. And this together factor is an important point because it's very easy to become me-oriented when we pray. It's very easy to kind of turn it around and just focus on us. But when you pray our Father, you are confessing that your problems are not the only problems in the world. You're admitting that there are millions and billions of people around the world who have concerns just as great as yours. And when we pray like this, it gives a, a bigness and an expansiveness to your prayer because it includes all of God's children everywhere. When we pray our Father, as a trilogy family, we cease to be individuals coming to church with our own individual concerns, and instead, we become part of a family, God's family, with a common mission and with shared values, and we are on mission together to see that done. It's a family created by the new birth in Christ and made possible by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross as he won our redemption. He won us back to his family. And that leads us to a crucial theological point that we have to understand. The first step in prayer is to learn to call God and recognize him as our father. Something you may not realize is that when Jesus taught them to call God our father, it shocked them. This was not acceptable. It was not commonplace. It was really unheard of. Jesus must have appeared to them at, at minimum unconventional, at most extremely radical when he said, pray like this, our Father in heaven. Now, a little bit of information on how radical this would have been in his time. In those days, ordinary Jews would not dare to think about calling God Father. Up until that time, for over 2,000 years, they often called their human ancestors Father, or fathers, people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David were referred to as father. They would also call the Lord God of our fathers, but not our father. That was too personal. That was too close. Their religious teachers would remind them, never call God the father because it makes you feel too close to God, kind of buddy-buddy, almost chummy with God. And that was never to be done. Know your place, you're human, he is divine. The bottom line, calling God Father in such an affectionate term as Jesus did, reaching out and calling him Abba, 
uh, was considered by the religious leaders a blasphemy against God that deserved the penalty of death by stoning. So that is the first line of the Lord's Prayer. Hey guys, pick up your rocks. That Pray this way. <laughs> Our Father in heaven. I looked in the Old Testament to find out how often the Israelites called God Father. Three times in the Old Testament. The first one who ever possibly called God his father was King David. And there's no actual evidence that David did, but it was God who gave David permission to call him father. And that's in Psalm 89, verse 26. And he will call out to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. That's Psalm 89, verse 26. You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Isaiah once prayed to God, for you are our father. Another time Malachi called God father and he was lamenting the fact that people of God treated one another so badly. And he said, do we not all have one father? So that's it, guys. Besides these three instances, no one in the entire Old Testament ever called God father. The people of God would restrain themselves from calling God their father. They didn't feel worthy to do that. And that tradition was about to change when Jesus instructed his disciples to start their prayer, calling God our Father. Now, the best part of prayer and the power of prayer lie right there in these two words, our Father, because it reminds us that prayer is not earned through a religion. It is given through a relationship. Prayer is not earned. It's not a right that we have to earn and we have to progress towards through some religious structure. Prayer is given. It is a gift that we have to communicate with our creator through relationship with him. You begin the prayer and you remember who God is, who you are, and to whom you are praying. He is your father, you are his child, and you are praying to your father in heaven. And by instructing his disciples and us, to start calling God our Father, Jesus elevated their status and our status from a sinner to a saint, from a commoner to a royal child of God, and from a complete stranger to God's adopted child. It gets us, and it really, it gets even better than this because later on, after his resurrection, fast forward a few years, Jesus ultimately promoted us to, in an astonishingly impossible and mind boggling way, to the same status as his. John 20, verse 17. But go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. He puts us at the same level as he is. From then on, every writer of the New Testament was inspired and instructed by the Spirit of God to boldly call God the Father. Abba, the most affectionate term that you can use for a father. Philip called God father. Peter did too. Paul called God Abba. And, as, and we as believers in Christ today also have the same privilege today. Paul wrote this to the church in Rome. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, father. One critical thing to understand in all of this is that everyone is invited to be God's child, but not all of them become a child of God. 
Everyone is invited to be God's child, but not all of them become a child of God because each one has to believe in and trust Jesus to be a child of God. Anyone can recite the Lord's Prayer and call God Abba Father until his face is blue, but it doesn't automatically turn him into God's child just because they pray this prayer. The only people who can claim that title of child of God are those who are the children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's through our relationship with Jesus that we become that. And it's popular today for people to say, well, we're all God's children, and to say that pretty casually. But that, I think in my mind, it dangerously blurs the line between those who know Jesus Christ and those who don't. Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher, uh, said this, it is not a general prayer intended for the masses but is instead a prayer for the true disciples of Christ, those who have been converted by the saving grace of God. When we begin this prayer, our Father, we are already declaring that God is our Father, and to do that, we have to have a personal relationship with Jesus. So first, we begin with our Father. Second, you are to call him our Father. And boy, does that have meaning. When you call God Father, you are saying there is someone in heaven who hears and knows and understands and cares and responds to you as you pray. That whatever a good father on earth would do for his children, that's what God in heaven will do for his children as well. That's what he will do for you. You see, sons and daughters, they have kind of, they have family rights, don't they? That guarantee them access to their father. That's a big part of what being a father is all about, is being there for your kids. My children don't need an appointment to see me, although sometimes my ministry schedule may make it feel that way sometimes. And if they're listening to this, I'm sorry for that, those times, kiddos. Uh, you deserve better than that, and I will do better than that. I will always be here when you need me. Uh, but in the same way, I don't need an appointment to see my heavenly father. I don't, I don't need to like, okay, God, next Thursday at 2 p.m., are you busy? Can I, you know, can I get on my knees and bring some needs to you? Uh, even in the midst of running the entire universe and keeping the stars in their courses and making sure the planets don't run into each other, and while he oversees nearly 8 billion people here on, all the, on earth with all their troubles and cares and problems and worries and fears and difficulties, God still has time to listen to me, to listen to you. God listens to us as if he had no one else to listen to. That's what a father does. Now, thirdly, we pray to our father, we pray to our father, and we pray to our father who is in heaven. And if we're honest, that's kind of usually a throwaway line for most of us as we pray this prayer. Our father who art in heaven, or our father in heaven in, in the new living, it's kind of something we don't even think about, right? I mean, we tend to think it means that earth is where we are and heaven is where God is, which we imagine is somewhere, you know, that side of the clouds. Uh, but that's not really what it means at all. It's not about location. The phrase in heaven refers to heaven as the center of everything, everything that is, and the seat of all authority and all power and all dominion belongs 
to the person who occupies that. All greatness belongs there. You are on earth and you are limited to this little ball of dearth that's floating around the sun in a little corner of this big galaxy called the Milky Way. And that galaxy is just one of millions of galaxies in a universe so huge that we cannot accurately measure it. And to say that we are on earth means that we pray from a position of weakness and comparative insignificance to God. God is in the seat of all authority and all power. So when you say our father in heaven, you're declaring that he has the authority to and the power to hear you and to help you when you pray. It's precisely because God is in heaven that he has the power to help you. Think of it this way. You know, as far as a structure of, of this first line, our father, that talks about community. Our Father, that talks about family. And in heaven, talks about authority. Or to say it another way, our, I pray with others. Our Father, I pray to one who cares for me. Our Father in heaven, I pray to one who has the power to help me. Every single word is significant. Every word has meaning. Our opens you up to a, a bigger view of God's creation. It's not just you-centric. Father encourages you to believe that he cares and in heaven means that you don't have a problem that he can't handle. Here's the thing. You don't have a need in your life that he can't meet because he's a father in heaven who hears and answers prayer. God is able. God is there. He is listening and he will respond. And I bet you never thought all that was found in the first line of the Lord's Prayer. It is packed with meaning. Without a doubt, the central word in the first line, though, is father. The word father in the Bible means three basic things. First, it refers to a source or origin. God is the source of all that you have. We talked about that earlier when we talked about generosity. God is the source of all that we have. The traditional doxology that is sung in some churches begins with the words, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Everything comes from him. Or as the Bible says in Acts 17, he himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need. Everything flows from God. Now, secondly, the word father speaks of parental authority. There's an authority that comes with that. He is God and you are not. Uh, he is running the show. I'm not in charge. He is a father. You are his child. We can't use the fact of God's incredible and limitless love as an excuse to reject his right to rule over us. In fact, his love is the main reason we should follow him wherever he leads and do whatever he has commanded. Because he is our father in heaven, he has the right to do as he pleases because all authority is his, even if his ways do not always make sense to us. Now, parents, let me speak to you for a second. You have made plenty of rules for your kids that I'm guessing at times didn't make sense to them. You know, teenagers, I'm sure your parents have some guidelines and rules in your life that you don't always understand why. But here's the thing. Our rules don't have to make sense to our kids. They just need to obey them. And as they grow, they will hopefully realize that every rule and every guideline that we put in place for them is either to protect them or to provide for them. Those rules and guidelines are there because we love them and we want the best for them. 
And the exact same thing holds true for our Heavenly Father. We should be confident of his goodness towards us at all times. Now, thirdly, when you call God Father, you confess that he is a God of love. There's a Hebrew word in the Old Testament, hesed, which is translated a number of different ways. In the King James, hesed is usually uh, translated as loving kindness, as in thy loving kindness is better than life. Uh, My apologies to all of you who have been around the church for a long time and now have that song in your head and will not be able to get rid of it. Uh, The newer translations take that concept and they add the concept of faithfulness. So it's loving kindness and faithfulness. And this word talks about God's loyal love to all of his children. Uh, It's the love that keeps on loving no matter what we do or no matter how badly we blow it or how many dumb mistakes we make. He is a God who never lets his children go. He loves his kids with an everlasting love that is faithful and loyal no matter what happens. When we were far away from him, he loved us. When we turned our back on him, he loved us. When we broke his law, he loved us. When we went our own way, he loved us. When we said, leave us alone, we don't want you around anymore. He said, I'm going to stay around anyway. And when we, when we ran away, he followed. When we hid, he found us. When we cursed him to his face, he just smiled and said, I love you anyway. That's what loyal love is all about. That's the father's love for his children. He is always near us, whether we see him or feel him, or even whether we believe he is there. God loves you and he's there. That's what a father does. Jesus told a story in Luke 15 that perfectly illustrates this reality for us. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. And it's all about a young man who made a foolish decision and what happened to him as a result of that decision. The story begins with a younger son who struggles under his father's authority uh, and maybe feels put down by his obedient older brother who kind of toes the line, does everything right. So he demands his inheritance from his father that he'll, he's supposed to get one day, but he wants it now. And his father agrees to give it to him. And then he spends every dime, he, he leaves home, he journeys to a faraway land, and, and he spends every dime on wild living. Parties day and night, women on both arms, life in the fast lane, whatever he wants, he buys with his father's money. And eventually the money runs out and he has nothing. And when a famine comes, not having any money anymore uh, and being too far away from home and really not being able to go back, he joins up with a farmer, a local farmer, who says the only work I have is feeding my pigs and so he takes a job slopping pigs. And the prodigal son ends up penniless, homeless, starving, feeding the pigs and eating the seed pods from the pig food. This young man who had eaten prime rib just a few weeks earlier is now dining with the pigs. And in the end, he lost everything. The prodigal son hit rock bottom and that's when his life began to change. And he uh, came to his senses and realized what a fool he'd been. Secondly, he decides to return to his father He mentally rehearses, you know, how he's going to uh, make things right, how he would confess his sin to his father. And finally, he got up from the pig pen and started this long journey home. And as he walked along the road, one question kept going through his mind. What is my father going to say? Will he take me back? I mean, with his head down, he walked along the dirt road. He's embarrassed. He's humiliated. Certainly, these fears... We're justified, right? I mean, we don't often think about the father's pain, 
when we read this story, but it couldn't have been easy for him. Uh, first, he lost part of the fortune that he had worked so long to, to build up. Second, he lost his reputation in the community. You know, family's everything and family loyalty and honor and respect is huge in Hebrew culture. And so when a son leaves home in anger like this and just kind of frivolity, he, he leaves home. There's no way to keep that hidden. The older brother knew, the hired men on, on his dad's land knew. And soon even the friends and neighbors around are gonna know about it and then it's gonna spread. Because every time the father went into town, people are gonna be talking about it behind his back. I mean, dysfunctional families make for good gossip. Uh, so they talked about what had happened. They analyzed the problems. They tried to figure out what went wrong. Perhaps some of the younger men even took the son's side. No doubt the older men sided with the father. Meanwhile, the father knows about all this talk. He hears the whispers and through it all, he silently struggles to keep and preserve his dignity. But the worst pain was the simple fact that this father had lost his son. His son had rejected him and walked away. After all those years, all those prayers, after holding him in his arms, after teaching him how to hunt and fish, after pouring out an ocean of love, suddenly his dream for his son is shattered. His father's left with this huge hole in his heart. And words really can't express the pain, the sadness, the loss this father feels. His son had left home and no one can console him. And after all that, could anyone really blame the father if he refused to forgive his son? I mean, no wonder the son worries as he slowly journeys back towards home. He has no idea what's waiting for him. And the Bible says that while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him. You see, this is a great moment. His father saw him first. His father saw him and was moved with compassion. Day after day, his father had watched for his son. Night after night, he waited for his return. I mean, nothing deterred him, not the weather, not the jokes and the skeptics, uh, not the doubting looks of his friends. Deep in his heart, he knew that his son would someday come home. And then it happened one day, late in the afternoon, when the sun was beating down and sweat covered his face, he saw a figure slowly come over the rise in the distance and begin to walk hesitantly toward him. He recognized him instantly and throwing all dignity aside he goes after him he ran to meet his son he embraced him he threw his arms around him and he kissed him and the word jesus used means that he smothered him with kisses in that one moment all questions were answered for the son the son's fear melted away in the tears and the hugs and no one could have ever predicted what happens next this is the reason that we love this story. We read it over and over again. We cling to it. We believe it. We hope in it. We stake our lives upon it. All because of the father's welcome to his wayward son. And verse 24 brings the first part of the story to a close with these incredible words of hope in Luke 15, 24. So the party began. That was the father's response. He threw a party. And at the father's command, a party begins at last for days. How does the father feel about his son who has come home? Verse 32 tells us, we had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. 
back from the dead, found, alive again, home again. No wonder the father said, let's have a party. It was the father's love that made him run to the son while his son was still this great distance away. He goes sprinting towards his son and gives him this massive welcome. And that same love caused him to kill the fatted calf, throw this enormous party. The son who was lost was now found. And even during the darkest days and the longest nights, the father never gave up hope that one day his son would come home. That's what God's loyal love is all about. You've never done anything that could make God stop loving you. But you don't know what I've done this week. That's all right. God knows and he loves you anyway. You've never even imagined anything that could make God stop loving you. I'm far away from God. He still loves you. I've sinned. He still loves you. You don't understand. I don't have to understand. He knows and he loves you anyway. You say, I don't care. I'm going to go my own way. It doesn't matter. He still loves you. And when you're ready, he'll be ready. When you turn around, he'll be standing at the door to welcome you back. That is the powerful, relentless love of God. That's the love of a God who is called Father. The Lord's Prayer answers the greatest question of the universe. Is there anybody up there who cares about me? Is there anybody up there who watches over me? Is there anybody up there who knows my name? And the answer comes back, yes, yes, yes. There is a God in heaven who cares about you, who loves you beyond anything you could ever imagine, and his name is Heavenly Father. This prayer is the answer to one of the deepest problems of mankind, the problem of fatherlessness. The Lord's Prayer reminds us that if we know Jesus Christ, we are not orphans in this universe. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, Ever since that original sin took place and our relationship with God was broken, that image of God within each of us has been ruined by sin. I want you to picture kind of a, a piece of paper that's written with big block letters, God's image in huge letters on this paper. And before Adam and Eve sinned, that paper was clean and smooth. It was perfect. But now for all of us, that paper is crumpled and it's dirty and it's torn, but it is never completely destroyed. Despite all our failures, we still want to know God and there's this longing to get back. We still want to find meaning in life, but we just don't know where to look. And we're left with this kind of father hunger. And that's a phrase used to describe children growing up in a family without a strong and, and compassionate and loving father figure. And the father may have died or he may have abandoned his family or perhaps he's too busy that he had no time for his family because he barely knows his children. They'll completely that they will compete desperately for little scraps of his love and his approval. And children growing up in a home like that desperately want a father. And, and they will look for someone or something to fill that void. And on a much larger scale, that's the story of all humanity. You know, we were made to know God and we want to know him, but our sin has separated us from him. And so we're left with this deep father hunger vertically that won't go away. And some people become so desperate to fill that that they turn to, to drugs, they turn to alcohol to fill that void inside and they become addicted. Others float from one failed relationship to another. And some people bury themselves in their work and, and success in the hope that climbing to the top of this corporate heap will silence that little voice inside that says there must be something more. And in Jesus, we have discovered the greatest news of all, 
that our God is not some impersonal deity, not fate or chance or some mechanical karma, not something mystical, not a God who's far off or doesn't care. In Jesus, we've discovered the most important truth of the universe. Our God is a father. He loves you so much that he did something we would never think of doing. He gave his own son to die for you. All that a good father is to his children, God will be to his children when we come to him in prayer. That is why the most profound prayer you will ever pray has only three words, our heavenly father. Pray that and if you really understand what it means, that is the prayer and everything else that comes after is just the PS. It's just the rest. Because if we truly understand our heavenly father and we approach him in that way, that's kind of sufficient. That's enough. Jesus made prayer simple. If it were difficult, most of us would forget it or mess it up somehow. So Jesus made it really simple for us. But these simple words are profound beyond our understanding. Everything that God has for us and everything that God is for us is wrapped up in the word Father. When we come to him in Jesus' name, we're not coming to an angry God who's waiting to strike us. We're coming to a loving Father who's waiting to forgive us. So don't be afraid and don't hesitate to talk to God. Your father is waiting to hear from you. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we can come to you as our heavenly father. We thank you, God, that you are there. We thank you that you are our father and that this is a relationship that we have with you in community with one another, that we are truly brothers and sisters in Christ. And in some cases, God, that closeness, that brother and sister relationship spiritually goes deeper than maybe our sibling relationships here on earth. Because God, there's something supernatural that bonds us together. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live in the context of our Father. Let us live life in community. God, as we cry out to our Father, I pray that you would help us to recognize that love that you have for us and that desire that you have to provide for us, but also to protect us and to keep us from harm. And, and God, I pray that you would help us to recognize that you are in heaven, that you are on the seat of all authority and all power, and you are the source of all that is. And God, as we come to you, you are a good God and you are willing and you are a great God and you are able to meet any need that we can bring you. So Lord, we thank you for this beginning to this incredible prayer that Jesus modeled for us, our God in heaven. We love you and we reach out to you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.